Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by 417 Helmets. It's collectible helmets and more. Many football helmets from just about every dead and forgotten football league you've ever heard of. Also, many baseball helmets from the Negro Leagues, as well as custom helmets. You want your business or your organization represented in a cool mini helmet format? Hey, check them out. 417helmets.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show. 4-3 Chihuahuas in Oklahoma City. Matone set and the pitch. Swung on ground ball to third. This could do it. Noonan has it. Throws the ball to first. It's caught. The Chihuahuas have won the championship. El Paso beats Oklahoma City in four games. The tying run left at third in the bottom of the 11th inning. The Chihuahuas with black jerseys on, gray pants on, jumping up and down. They're piling on Phil Matone. He's laying down. Now they're standing up, hopping up and down. An aggressive celebration on the grass in between the pitcher's mound and first base. The Chihuahuas score a run in bizarre fashion in the top of the 11th on a bunted ball that flew out of the pitcher's glove when he tried to make a diving play. They take a lead into the bottom of the 11th inning. Oklahoma City hits a double. The runner advances to third and is left at third base. Chihuahua's relievers leaving on the winning run in scoring position in the ninth, 10th, and in the case of the 11th inning, the tying run left on. El Paso relievers in the final four innings of this 11-inning game, leaving six on base. A suspenseful championship win for the Chihuahuas. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Good golly, Miss Molly. How are you, everybody? It's your pal, Tim. It's uh, Good Seats Still Available. Thanks for coming on by. As you know by now, it's the uh, little podcast, the crazy and odd little podcast that is devoted to, of course, what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming by. And uh, we're back into minor league baseball. It is the endless array of choices that we have from minor league baseball that it that entrances us because, you know, for a show like this that just obsesses about teams and leagues and situations that are either defunct or previously domiciled or just fallen out, forgotten or vanished, uh, there is uh, no better source, no unending source better than minor league baseball. And nobody understands that better than our guest this week, Tim Haggerty, the Longtime voice of the Pacific Coast League, El Paso Chihuahuas. Yes, who I think you can hear on ESPN 600 in El Paso. That was him, Tim, uh, calling the uh, final game of the 2016 uh, Pacific Coast League season when the Chihuahuas won it all, beating the uh, arch rival Oklahoma City Dodgers uh, to win their first Pacific Coast League championship. Uh, Tim's been with the team for a bunch of years, I think even dating back to uh, when they were the Tucson Padres. But I digress because in between those games, and arguably in between seasons, when Tim isn't not only calling the games or acting as the chief media and PR person for the team or doing other various front office duties, because that's what you do when you're in the minors. Everybody pitches in to do stuff. 
he's been writing books about just the crazy sort of wacky little nooks and crannies of of minor league baseball. Back in 2012, uh, he wrote uh, Root for the Home Team, minor league baseball's most off-the-wall team names and the stories behind them. If you're interested in various wacky names like the Texarkana Casket Makers or the Wichita Izzies, well, stay tuned because that's what that book is about. And we're going to get into some of those kinds of crazy stories. And of course, his new book, which we're uh, here to also promote. It's called Tales from the Dugout, a thousand and one, yes, we counted them, humorous, inspirational, and wild anecdotes for minor league baseball, where uh, literally goes page by page uh, into all kinds of crazy, wacky uh, stories of of teams and situations uh, in the minors over baseball's, minor league baseball's uh, uh, rich and colorful history. For example, the Lake Erie Crushers, you do you remember them? Uh, they were around in 2011, and they may still be around for all I know. I forget what league they're in. But back in 2012, somebody stole their mascot's head, and uh, they had to uh, – that forced the mascot to miss a whole bunch of games. And uh, somehow, after learning through media reports uh, that the police were investigating this theft, the uh, thief apparently – return the head by inconspicuously placing it under the ballpark's tarp when the management wasn't looking, I guess, when the park was uh, locked up or maybe in a rain delay or something like that. Um, that's just the tip of the iceberg of, of various crazy stories um, that have transpired that uh, that Tim has dug up. We're going to be talking about a bunch of those, but we're also going to get into sort of the, sort of the life and times of, of today's minor leagues. And of course, I will ask Tim his opinions on uh, the consolidation of minor league baseball under the umbrella of major league baseball, whether that's good or not so good or various things in between that. But this is a fun little uh, conversation uh, that uh, kind of goes back in time uh, and isolates some of the the uh, wackier and zanier stories and names from minor league baseball's past and uh, a, a bit of what uh, sort of the uh, inside scoop is going on today in today's minor leagues with our guest this week tim haggerty the voice of the el paso chihuahuas hard to say uh if you're not used to it coming right up in just a few moments time and i cannot think of a better sponsor this week to highlight uh when we talk about minor league baseball and all the pasts and presence of such then ebbets field flannels ebbets.com e-b-b-e-t-s.com ebbets field flannels as you must know by now is uh, perhaps best known for uh, its painstakingly uh, accurate recreations of flannel jerseys from baseball's past, but also things like team jackets and not just baseball, but other sports too, caps and 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 the like. And it's uh, it's the highest quality stuff you're going to find out there. And if you're truly a sports historian and you want to show off to your friends and family the best in uh, baseball or pro football or pro hockey uh, and even other sports garb, uh, the place to go to check out the best of breed is Ebbets Field Flannels. And again, it's Ebbets, E-B-B-E-T-S, two B's, one T, dot com. And of course, when you find and fall in love with the various items that uh, you just simply must have there, please use the promo code GOODSEATS10 for 10% off all of your purchases. Yes, GOODSEATS and the number 10 at ebbets.com. And we thank Ebbets Field Flannels for their sponsorship of the show 
And uh, you'll be uh, absolutely glad that you went there for sure. Bookmark it and uh, enjoy all the items. Why don't you? All right, let's uh, get uh, right to our chat that we had about a month ago uh, with, again, the uh, the voice of the Chihuahuas. Here he is, Tim Haggerty. Let's get into the various craziness of minor league baseball teams and leagues and names and all that kind of stuff. A fun chat. Please, as always, enjoy. Tell us where you are right now and uh, what were you doing last night? Because um, were you on the road? Was it a home game? What are you? Uh, who are you broadcasting for these days? So I'm the broadcaster for the Padres AAA team, the El Paso Chihuahuas. And we are in Round Rock, Texas, outside Austin, against the Rangers AAA team. And a uh, great setup here in Round Rock. Really nice stadium. And you, uh, so you've been at this for some time. Um, maybe a little bit of background about your uh, your journey into um, professional sports broadcasting and baseball in particular. You've, you've done a bunch of different sports. I've seen in some interviews, like in Baseball America a couple of years ago, you've, you've mentioned, I think, soccer and I think some ice fishing, maybe even in Vermont or something <laughs> like that. Um, tell us the, uh, I guess, the uh, uh, the background, the ideation of the career and the pursuit uh, that got you to uh, to El Paso thus far. Well, it started when I was in high school, uh, Canton, Massachusetts. The high school there has the town cable access TV station in it. And so it allowed kids to do this TV show and broadcast play by play. So I was broadcasting games when I was 16 or 17 and knew I wanted to pursue this. I was always passionate about baseball. Growing up near Boston, you know, other kids would follow the Patriots and the Bruins and the Celtics. And I did that too, but I was always 98 percent baseball um, and targeted a college that was specific to broadcasting linden state up in vermont and from there uh was able to get my first job with idaho falls the royals rookie league team and the pioneer league in 2004 all right so before you go further yeah sure how do you get a gig like that from vermont and into i mean like how, what's the process like how do you how do you get the the, the looks the tapes all that stuff so a big process was the baseball winter meetings, an annual convention that's held in a different city every year. And everybody from the major league GMs to the minor league GMs is there. And it is exciting to walk in and you see Theo Epstein and Brian Cashman. But in my world at that time, the most exciting thing was seeing the Helena Brewers GM. Like you hear whispers, they have an opening and you're determined to give them your CD. Um so when I found this link, when I was in my college dorm room to the baseball winter meetings, I thought I had this secret. I thought I had the inside. I bought this Baseball America directory and I'm memorizing minor league GM's names. And then I walk into this massive convention center in New Orleans where the winter meetings were that year. This is December, 2003. And I see about a hundred guys that look exactly like me holding their Baseball America directories, you know, with their suits on that they just bought the week before. And there were four job postings and I'm looking around saying, this is a lot more competitive than I thought it was going to be. So that was pretty intimidating, but I was lucky to leave there with a job offer to go broadcast for Idaho Falls, the rookie league team, and uh, was off from there. For the grand sum of? $850 per month. But it actually wasn't terrible because there was this new apartment building a few miles from the stadium and they were desperate to get people in there. And the rent was $300 a month. So the the salary wasn't big, but the truth is 
I made out better than you might have thought. And when you walk into something like that, I mean, you're wide eyed and 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 I'm sure the management isn't necessarily expecting a whole lot from somebody fresh out of college. Um, and you're taught, was this an independent league team? Sorry, I forgot what league this was in. This was the Kansas City Royals affiliate in okay. the Pioneer League. Okay. And obviously this is, and we'll get to your opinions about what minor league baseball looks like now in the major league baseball overload, overlord and ownership saga later. But um, what, uh, what do you expect going in and, and what's the reality going in? I have to say, if I had any strength as a college broadcaster, I was pretty obsessed with this. So I, I think I really did my homework. Like when I was a senior in college, if you asked me, who's the broadcaster for the AA Huntsville Stars? I pulled that name because I heard your recent audio about the Huntsville Stars. Thank you. By um, the way, where do, where can I Venmo you? <laughs> but I would have known their name, where they were from, where they worked previously. So I think I knew the broadcaster can expect to do things other than broadcasting. And I think expectations versus reality, it was even more exciting than I would have dreamed. I grew up in the Northeast, went to college in the Northeast, and there I am driving out to Idaho and passing through Wyoming and Montana and just these places that were the Wild West in my head. And I definitely got a reality check fast, you know, weeks after telling college friends, I'm going to go be a professional baseball broadcaster. There was this community event that asked for the Chucker's mascot. I think his name was Charlie the Chucker. A chucker, by the way, is a pheasant-like bird. And the hourly person was unavailable to be the mascot. So the general manager said, hey, can you can you be Charlie the Chucker at this community event at this hospital tomorrow? And I said, sure. Uh, so there I was, excited to be a professional baseball broadcaster throwing on a big chicken head. Um, but the truth is, that probably helped me because then in future interviews, you know, you can tell that funny story and other teams say, okay, this guy's willing to help out the team. He's willing to do other things. He doesn't have an ego that will say, no, I'm not going to do something like that. Well, you said something in an interview. I think this was the Baseball America interview in, in 2020 where, uh, you know, when everybody was sort of sitting on their hands with this pandemic thing. Um, you kind of uh, mentioned that uh, most people really don't understand kind of what a minor league broadcaster's kind of day is both at home, which is a little bit more intense, a little bit more full and on the road. Um, and and maybe this is the beginnings of sort of an understanding that um, I would say it's all hands on deck, but uh, it's, it, you know, you, you're chipping in doing a whole bunch of different things. Do you want to maybe enlighten us as to sort of maybe what your home game day is like? Cause I think a lot of it's lost on a lot of people that, you know, they think you show up at, 4.30 and talk to a couple of people and then boom, go right. on. Yeah, so I'm a full-time employee of the El Paso Chihuahuas. So I'm there in the winter as well. And during the winter, I'm involved with corporate sales, meeting with businesses, telling them the opportunities we have to be a sponsor with the team. Um, I'm additionally the media relations manager. So when a local newspaper wants a photo request or when somebody wants to interview a player or when San Diego's media wants to interview a player, um, or overseeing the rosters and the stat packs and the game notes. I also oversee a handful of employees, and this has grown in recent years with Major League Baseball's rules experiments where there's more and more employees in minor league press boxes. So I oversee the scheduling and the payroll for the official scorer, the pitch clock operator, 
the automatic ball strike employees, that type of thing. So there's really, I think, two types of minor league broadcasters. Some will work seasonally and focus just on the broadcasting. And then they'll go and call play-by-play of basketball somewhere in the winter or have some other type of on-air job in the winter. To me, like I said, I've enjoyed filling in on basketball and ice fishing, as you mentioned. But um, I remember a couple of years ago filling in on a New Mexico versus New Mexico State college basketball game. And the arena was packed. And one coach had previously coached for the other team. And it was a wild atmosphere. And it was a close game. And it was really fun. But as I was walking to my car on that November night, I began thinking about the San Diego Padres 40-man roster. So if that can illustrate what my thoughts are like, it's uh, I enjoy doing other sports while I'm doing them, but really pretty focused on baseball. So um, for me, I've actually grown to like the off-air responsibilities. I think that maybe if I look back to my early 20s, I was so focused on broadcast only that maybe um it led to some weaknesses somewhere else whereas the other job responsibilities in the winter kind of make me uh easier to talk to when it comes to people that know nothing about sports well i guess my SOS has gives it gives you a sense of sort of where uh broadcasts and media sort of fit into the grander scheme of things right obviously at a a relatively smaller level uh versus say that of Major league or, or you know the the division one sports so to speak of of in pro land but but the reality is it's still a business right it's it's a it's a franchise there's relations with the parent club there's talent there's budgeting there's uh, raising revenues there's sponsorship there's salaries all that kind of stuff right and I'm sure the more uh, involved you are on a full time basis the more you're exposed to that and it's almost like kind of like a mini MBA if you will in addition to honing your broadcast skills. I think that's well said. Um, I remember coming up through the lower levels. I mentioned Idaho Falls. I then went to AA Mobile. Speaking of defunct teams, sadly, that team doesn't exist anymore. The Mobile. Um, Bay Bears of the AA Southern League at Hank Aaron Stadium. But as I was working for these places, it made sense that these other things can help me. I mean, think about if you're the general manager of a AAA team and your broadcaster leaves and there's a broadcast position open and person A has a good demo tape. But in the winter, they go and they broadcast basketball in Louisiana. But then person B also has a good demo tape. But hey, he's done some corporate sales. He can write us a press release. He can assist with maintaining the website. He's even dressed up like the mascot before. It's understandable that person B maybe fits a little bit better. Uh, so that's why that type of thing early on motivated me is that it can help your broadcast career. But I also had to think too, and I didn't make the, make this a career, uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> a conversation. But it's fascinating to me because number one, you, you know, you still broadcasting is a uh, how can I best put it, a fickle business, right? Um, and perhaps even more so as private equity is squeeze the living daylights out of things like radio and uh, AM and FM stations and that kind of stuff. Um, it's one thing, I mean, it's, it seems like it's been kind of almost assumed, you know, for aspiring young broadcasters that it's kind of like, you got to get any gig you can, and if possible, get multiple gigs, right? Cause that's how you essentially sort of pay the bills and maybe, I mean, rare, I think it's rare that you see, you know, the Joe Bucks and the Troy Aikman's of the world getting these multi-million dollar, you know, Amazon contracts and that kind of stuff, right? Whereas the only gig that they do 
I mean, the vast majority, even at the, you know, the top level, you'll hear some of these voices doing, you know, basketball on one network and baseball on another network or even on a local level, the same thing, right? You'll hear the the sports reporter, you know, on a, on a radio station and then, you know, they may be doing quote unquote moonlighting. I don't even know which is the moonlighting of, you know, some games locally in town. So I, it, it does feel to me like it's always, you know, I won't say hand to mouth, but it's always a pursuit and, and a hustle, so to speak. Yeah, no doubt. And even looking back to when you're a young aspiring broadcaster, that's what you're doing is fighting to get games. I'm willing to move to this city to get games. I'm willing to do this and this for a radio station because at night they let me broadcast the games. Uh, that's why to me, I love articles that mention a longtime broadcaster and they called their X thousandth game. Uh, so-and-so has called 4,000 games for this team. I mean, to me, that's so admirable because that's what we're all striving to do is to get on the air and do play-by-play. And a lot of people want to do it. To me, that was kind of the emotional part of the minor league season being wiped out by the pandemic is we're all fighting to get games. And when you have 140 games schedule and that gets taken away, it felt like something was taken away from you. It felt like somebody was taking pride, taking money. This is something that was your opportunity and it went away. Um, in the big picture, I was very lucky in the pandemic. I, I continue to be employed, so I'm not saying that, but I mean, just the the aspect of having a game schedule taken away. Um, you're right, what you say, even at the highest level, I suspect even the best of the best feel that way. I remember watching uh, the great Kevin Harlan in an interview. I'm sure a lot of your listeners know him. He does uh, NFL, NBA, college sports on both radio and TV. And just how um, self-critiquing he is. Even now at this level, he's one of the most famous play-by-play broadcasters in America. And he'll watch an NFL game that he called between the Titans and the Chiefs a few days after it happened. And he's just upset with himself at a mistake that he made that we never even noticed. Not even a mistake, but just the way his voice moved in a certain way, uh, his pitch changes on a certain call. I mean, this guy could roll out of bed and call play-by-play. And yet he's still so devoted to the craft and getting better. And I always think about things like that. And AAA, we have 150 games. And I've done more than 2,000 of these games. The truth is I could probably just show up and mail it in for a game. And for one game, people probably wouldn't notice. But that's unacceptable. These games are opportunities. There's an audience. Um, even if the audience is smaller than it is in Miami or Pittsburgh or Cincinnati, these are people that are choosing to listen to you. They care about these games. Uh, El Paso has a great fan base that people are following this. So I think you have to give it your all, even when you're established. Yeah. And we, we actually, we love, I personally love talking to broadcasters, especially older ones, because oftentimes you'll see if you go into the roster and Kevin Harlan, if you're listening, uh, we definitely want to have you on at some point, maybe after the playoffs, uh, they uh, often uh, do their, um, shall we say, a lot of penance in uh, teams and leagues that don't exist anymore, right? So Kevin, in particular, was a Kansas City Kings uh, announcer for a bunch of years. This is before, I think they might have been sharing with Omaha at the time as well, before they moved on to to Sacramento. Um, John Sterling, you know, the New York Yankees broadcaster who is, you know, easily into his early 80s now and still going strong. You know, he was like in the WFL and the ABA with the old New Jersey Nets. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Um, and it's uh, again, it's a part of paying your dues. And and clearly, even, you know, in, in your trajectory, right, you you 
paid dues at, at sort of the lower level of the miners. How do you how do you get to El Paso, which essentially uh, is, you know, uh, the peak, you know, your triple A? I mean, I, I got to think that even you're still looking perhaps for that uh, cup of coffee upstairs and into the into the majors at some point. I mean, don't tell your current employer, although the secret is out, but who wouldn't? Right. Um, how do you how does El Paso present itself? Is, does it go through the Padres organization? Is it a general manager at the El Paso thing? Like, how does that come about? Like, how did, how did what was your path to that? Well, your show is about defunct teams. So you're going to love this story. Um, after Mobile, I got a job as one of two broadcasters at AAA Portland in Oregon, 2008 through 2010. And at that time, the AAA team in Portland shared its facility with a minor league soccer club, the Portland Timbers. And the Portland Timbers were very popular. Major League Soccer had its eye on Portland as a potential expansion team site. But they said, if we'll give you a Major League base, excuse me, a Major League Soccer expansion site, the baseball team can't play there anymore because we need to renovate it and make it a soccer football only facility. Well, plans A, B, and C all fell through in Portland for a new AAA stadium. And as late as November of 2010, people still did not know where the Padres AAA team would be in 2011. There was a former AAA park that also housed a Major League Spring training in Tucson that was available. And as they sorted out the long-term future of the team, the Tucson Padres were born. And for three years, I was the broadcaster for the Tucson Padres at uh, Kino Stadium in Tucson. But that was not guaranteed. Um as the broadcaster, I'm an employee of the AAA club. The major league affiliate controls the players, the coaches, the training staff, but all of the business side is handled by the different minor league organization. But I was lucky enough to get that job, go down to Tucson. At that time, was engaged, uh, hoping my wife understood that we didn't really know the long-term future of where this team was going to be. And at that point, a local ownership in El Paso, Mountain Star Sports Group, purchased the team, put together a deal for a beautiful downtown stadium in El Paso. And in 2014, the El Paso Chihuahuas were born. But that Tucson to El Paso transition also wasn't guaranteed. New owners, new general manager, new team president. But I was lucky enough to interview and get that job. And yeah, I think that most AAA broadcasters are striving to get better and make contacts and get a major like opportunity, either on a fill-in basis or as their full-time job. But I think that with the popularity of El Paso, I mean, you should see this stadium. It is a palace and you show up on a Saturday night and there's 8,000 people there. It's just an incredible atmosphere. It's become one of the favorite places to go for visiting teams, for umpires, for scouts. It's really become one of the jewels of minor league baseball that it's made me a little bit more selective where it would have to be the right major league job because the triple A job I have right now is pretty special. Yeah. And um, it's also puts you in an interesting position because you're essentially, although you're mentioning sort of a previous incarnation, you've essentially been with the team since its very beginning there as well as its current incarnation and all that stuff. So in some respects, even it's only been what, nine years, nine seasons or so, um, you're almost like an historian, uh, unbeknownst, right? Because you've been there the very earliest days, and if every every season that you continue to be there and work, and 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 as a more general manager esque beyond just broadcaster, I mean, you're you become the de the de facto repository for this this team's relatively short, but uh, you know, still pretty special history. That is definitely part of why it was special. I've even used that unofficial historian phrase because 
the fans in El Paso will come up to me. I'll be sitting in a restaurant in November and they'll say, whatever happened to this player? And the amazing thing is they're not naming the guys who are major league all-stars. They're naming this very random pitcher. And, um, but I love that if I've become sort of the go-to person for El Paso Chihuahua's history. To me, that's one of the special things about broadcasting AAA games is that I'm really the only one that is at every game, home and road. We have media that covers home games, but this series that I'm speaking to you from in Round Rock, I'm the only El Paso on-air slash reporter type person covering these games. Um, so that's special when you look back at moments in this team's history and you can say, I was there. Yeah, and I'm looking right now at a picture of um... – of the park. I think it's, you share it with the um, uh, USL soccer team, the locomotive as well. Correct. That's right. Yeah. And it's a gorgeous park. I mean, it's really cool. I mean, you look at uh, sort of the, the, um, is it still called the, the dog house uh, in the, in right field that. uh, Yeah. Yeah. The brick building, like the big dog house. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's got a a little bit of a skyline to it and it's um, it's great. It's, it looks like it's a, an urban yet, you know, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, and uh, how many seats? Yeah, it has 7,500 fixed seats, but then when you add standing room only and the lawn seating, we've had crowds approaching 10,000. So it's so as I sort of tipped on the history thing for a second, because obviously I want to sort of drag in your your two books, the current one as well as the one that you you did about 10 years ago. Um, don't take this the wrong way, but it does sound to me like um, these uh, books um, – are almost a reflection of not that not that you have a lot of time on your hands, so to speak, but you have at least you've seen and experienced enough uh, change and and movements of teams, your own career as as well. Um, it almost feels to me like you kind of paid attention and said, you know what, <laughs> maybe maybe collecting some of these and putting these all together in in some kind of thematic f- uh, fashion makes sense. And I, I specifically call out Root for the Home Team, which is a book that sits prominently, which you cannot see behind me in my little studio library of books that are worth uh, keeping and referring to on a regular basis. Um, you know, I love the fact that that you went out of your way to figure out like all these different sort of teams, uh, the names of them, both, you know, present and past, mostly past, lots of past, uh, and sort of the little histories of kind of maybe how those names came about to the extent. I mean, that's... um. That's the Lord's work from our little studio's perspective. Uh, but, you know, I got to think it's also a lot of rabbit holes uh, and just opens up more Pandora's boxes of stuff uh, as you go deeper into that. What uh, what drove you to do that? Was it a, a rainy day weekend uh, waiting for the game to start again or what? Well, thank you for saving my book and, and describing where it is. That's a great compliment. Um, the origin of that was the Idaho Falls Chuckers. When I was there, the Chuckers were in their first year as that team name. And so many people would ask me, what is a Chucker? Where does that name come from? So it made me curious about minor league team names and the histories and some of the wildest ones there have ever been. So I looked for a book that described the craziest team names in minor league history. And there really wasn't one. There were encyclopedias that would list teams and their names. But as far as a book that visually maybe showed me a logo or a team picture or an explanation to where it came from. That book didn't really exist. So I began working on it and it became a side project for six, seven years. And I thought I really have something here, but I had no idea how this gets from my laptop into a bookstore 
like we've talked about, I was really broadcast only. I had never written a book before. So I actually bought How to Get Your Book Published for Dummies, which was a great book because it described how to write a proposal, how to contact publishers, what type of marketing plan they're looking for, and found Cider Mill Press. Uh, they do some great visual books, which is what I hoped. Um, the book you're describing, there's old team pictures, there's current team logos in it. And I think they did a great job with the layout of it. Yeah, and the thing is, and we'll we'll promote the hell out of it, right? Uh, as we promote the show and stuff, but but Roof of the Home Team, um, it is uh, it is visually um, well laid out and it's accessible, right? It's, you can literally like thumb through it and you know by a state or a name of a team or something, and it becomes a reference thing. But then you don't always, it's not always a reference thing. You could just like keep reading and reading and reading and go, that's more incredible than the next one, right? So you know when you're talking about the um, Hutchinson, Kansas, uh, salt packers, right. Um, those are, uh, it, it's, you know, the vignette, a little bit of the data, right. Which, you know, is, it puts in what league and what years and that kind of stuff, perhaps a little bit more, but then a little vignette, uh, and then maybe a picture that's sort of a, and it's, that's, and arguably all of those, each page or each team could be their own little stories too. Right. But, uh, that compendium is it's to me, it's like, it's indispensable when, um, you know, when you're going back in time, you're looking at sort of the histories of various teams and stuff or, or ones that cul de sac into death and uh, and lack of remembrance. Right. Um, I, so I think it's 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 really cool. Are there ones that you uh, remember that stand out in your mind and and maybe ones perhaps uh, that ha that eluded you that maybe you found after the fact or people came up to you and said, hey, did you ever why did you miss this one? That kind of stuff. Yeah, I I love team names that really connect to the city. An old one that I found, the Ilion Typewriters in Ilion, New York. I remember one day finding out that they were named that because the Remington Standard II typewriter was invented and produced there. And so many members of the community worked at that factory, so they decided to appeal to them and call the team the Typewriters. I love not only the name, but the story behind it. I think in there I'd do some kind of attempted a funny pun saying sports writers would love covering the typewriters or something like that. Um, as far as ones that eluded me, the one thing that comes to mind is the Montpelier goldfish in Vermont. My guess was that it referred to the color of the uniforms. Sometimes sports writers would call a team something in the newspaper and that unofficial name stuck with the team. The Sioux Falls Canaries were that way. There are no Canaries in South Dakota, but they wore these bright yellow uniforms. The sports writer called them the Canaries and that's how they got that name, which has continued for decades now. Um, but the Montpelier Goldfish, I never was able to pinpoint 100% why. My theory was the uniform color. There was a newspaper archive reference to some sort of goldfish and a kid and some sort of story that got some local appeal around that time. But I was never able to confirm that. So if anyone's listening to Tim in Vermont and you know why the early 1900s Montpelier goldfish got that name. Please let them know. No, we're, we're going to forward that to you ASAP. Um, well, okay, so putting that sort of in perspective or any other, any other, any other teams or uh, names that kind of just stick out in your memory, just off the top of your head from, from, from that pursuit. I mean, you've got some real wacky ones there. And I, I think the ones that are most interesting are the ones that don't make any sense. Like, I mean, <laughs> The, the the celery pickers from Kalamazoo. I mean, is celery a big deal up in Kalamazoo, Michigan? I don't know. I think there were farmers up there picking it, I think, if I remember correctly. The book came out in 2012. 
Um, yeah, and I love the fact, I, like, for example, on that when you say not to be confused with, you know, the Saskatoon berry pickers, right? Or the Greensville cotton <laughs> right. pickers, right? Or the Portersville orange pickers. Like, oh, of course. I've, why would I confuse? You know, I've, I didn't mean to confuse it with those. <laughs> yeah, we put that and then we put a between the lines section underneath each team to mention a notable on-field event or a notable player from those teams. Uh, but as far as some others that stand out, I love team names that you can mix in both a baseball phrase, but also a phrase that means something else. The independent Joliet slammers, like a grand slam. But of course, they're famously known for their prison in Joliet. Um, I love the name slammers. The Hillsboro hops, a current one in Oregon, of course, a hop in baseball, but it's also a reference to the beer production there in the Portland, Oregon area. Um, Trent, there's another one like that. Oh, yeah. Altoona Curve in Pennsylvania which is named after Horseshoe Curve, the railroad track. But of course, also it makes you think about a curveball. Um, so I think teams have done a really good job. I don't know about you, but when it comes to the latest group of extra wild minor league team names. My very next question. Go ahead. Yeah, I I like a team name that's like a solid eight on the wildness meter. Um, El Paso Chihuahuas, I think, fits that. It's notable lug nuts is like that but there's a couple that have just to me flown off the end like new orleans baby cakes that that was the first name where i thought okay are we going a little too far with this what about the what about the rocket city trash pandas yeah uh great logo you know they've had great well, success i, I don't want to knock them but when i first saw that one i thought okay no what i is get it and, and i get it look and let's let's be honest too right a lot of this is all about merchandise and stuff and and alternate you know jerseys and stuff i mean it seems like every every game now is an excuse for a different color scheme and all that kind of stuff um but yeah i mean some of these do sound like they do arguably try too hard or a bit more so to say manufactured yeah and i, I remember my reaction to the trash pandas when i first saw the name I wondered if it went too far, but I got to say, when I saw that logo of the little raccoon guy shooting into space, I thought that is a good looking logo. I do like I their totally caps. Agree. Totally agree. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't you, you Huntsville, Alabama friends just to, you know, I, I get it. It's great. I mean, but you know, it's just, it's, it's, um, it's also, I think symptomatic though, of trying to fuse words together and stuff and, and look, originality matters. There's no doubt because that becomes a trademarkable uh, benefit and that uh, leads to coin and uh, you know uh, merchandise and all that kind of stuff and that's you know that's all at a higher level now minor leagues major leagues you name it and uh, merchandise is the the base of most uh, teams and leagues ex existence now and um, you know the the more outlandish or memorable they are the better probably and that is a cool part when you're in an airport and you see a random Lansing lug nuts cap. Uh, yesterday, I was at a restaurant in Round Rock, and this family had Gwinnett Stripers caps on. Speaking of great names, love that one. Gwinnett Stripers, they have a cool-looking fish. That's the Braves AAA team in Georgia. Um, so, yeah, and, and that's obviously part of that. They're good-looking hats. They're cool logos. They're unique. They're conversation starters. All right, what's this? 417 Helmets. My goodness. Well, you've heard me talk about 417helmets.com, collectible helmets and more on this uh, very show uh, fairly often. Our pal Judd Lesher 
down in uh, southwest Missouri, I think in the Springfield, Missouri area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what is it? 417helmets.com. Well, first, if you dig uh, all of our great football stories and episodes of the past, and you'd like to commemorate some of them in mini helmet form, really cool, sort of literal, high quality, professionally you know, made materials, but in a mini format that you could put on your desk or uh, put on your uh, in your bookshelf or whatever it is, uh, and just about every league that's ever existed, save from the NFL. Uh, we're talking XFL, uh, old versions of uh, the WFL. Remember the World Football League? How about various teams, both current and past, in the Canadian Football League? But also NCAA teams of your and NAIA college football teams of your, all of them, and many, many, many more. Available for you at 417helmets.com. But, oh, that's not it. That's not it, friends. There's plenty more to be had. How about mini baseball helmets? Yeah, uh, a whole bunch in the Negro Leagues. And, yes, officially licensed by the Negro League Hall of Fame. You can get a bunch, and they're making more uh, all the time. And, by the way, custom helmets can be made, too, both of the baseball and the football variety. You got your uh, your business, uh, maybe a promotional thing you want to do for your company, uh, perhaps your organization, you want to raise some funds, all that kind of stuff. Great custom approaches to both mini football and mini baseball helmets can be made uh, at uh, your uh, command uh, for uh, uh, you to enjoy and to sell or resell or give away all of that and more. That's the more part at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more and uh, we've got a promo code for you too for whatever you purchase all of them all of your purchases 10% off all of those uh, when you use the promo code good seats again promo code good seats for 10% off all of your purchases at 417helmets.com thanks Judd and uh, thank you all for listening and trying them out and now back to our conversation So does this sort of tip uh, uh, a little bit of your interest beyond just uh, the day to day and your in the proverbial day and sometimes oftentimes night jobs uh, into baseball history? Because the current book, it just came out in in March, um, is similarly uh, 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 situated in terms of uh, its uh, format and all that stuff. But it seems to be a, um, a continuation of that, but instead more anecdotal, you know, wildness from the various minor leagues. Um, I got to think that some of these stories in this book um, come from personal experience as well, or, um, you know, or, or is this fully from the archives, so to speak, as your, your pursuit of it? Out of the 1,001 stories in my new book, I'd say about 20 are from games that I witnessed firsthand. A couple of notable ones. In 2007, I was on the air for a bathroom delay. Mobile was at Montgomery, Alabama. And Mobile had this pitcher, Matt Elliott. And in the bottom of the eighth inning, he allowed a game-tying home run. And he got so upset that he went into the dugout, went into the bathroom, and slammed the door so forcefully that it busted the lock. And he literally locked himself in the bathroom. He's the current pitcher in the game. So the three outs of the top of the ninth inning are done. Mobile takes the field. Everybody except the pitcher. The pitcher's mouth is just open. And you could tell something unusual was happening because the manager came out and he's literally scratching his head talking to the umpire. There's no new pitcher warming up. And that's when I'm past this note that says Matt Elliott locked in the bathroom. 
And I thought, can I really air this? And they nodded and they said, yeah, it's true. Uh, so they had to bring in a new pitcher. This guy, Matt Elliott, was locked in there until 40 minutes after the game ended. The Montgomery Fire Department had to come bust the door down to get him out. So that, of course, is in this book. Uh, 2015 is another example of a story in the book that was from a game that I witnessed when we had a wiener dog delay in El Paso. It was a between innings wiener dog race, and four of the five dogs went where they were supposed to. One of them went rogue and started running all around the infield. And the inning is about to begin, but there's this wiener dog racing all over the field. And it was only recently that I took a look at that video and noticed that one of the Oklahoma City players that he scampers past is Corey Seager, now a star with the Rangers. So Corey Seager has been the MVP of the World Series and also dealt with a wiener dog delay in his career. But you, I mean, you kind of maybe expect some of this stuff in the minors, no? Oh, absolutely. To me, that's part of the fun and part of the flavor. I mean, you're pretty unlikely to see a wiener dog delay at Yankee Stadium, right? Yeah, but, you know, things can go wrong. I mean, uh, you've got a number of of um, anecdotes about uh, animals and, and birds and those kinds of things, um, either previously invited to the ballpark or maybe uninvited. Um, you know, <laughs> right. uh, when humans aren't involved, it can get even crazier. Yeah, and that's what was so fun about researching this book. Back to your question of, you know, what percentage is what I've witnessed versus what I looked up. Um, flipping through newspaper archives, old Spalding and Reach guides, Baseball Digest archives. I made a research trip to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. I should note that there's a Sabre member, Al Arigi, who helped me. He lives in Maryland. He's retired. He happens to be my uncle, huge baseball fan, and heard about this project. And he would flip through some baseball books and see what he could find. Um, but yeah, there's certainly been some wildlife delays in the 1880s. There was a Texas league game that got delayed when a wild bull ran on the field. There was, uh, in the early 1900s, the New Orleans Pelicans, for some reason, had a live monkey as a mascot and ran around the field one day chasing players. There was a monkey delay. This, uh, this monkey somehow busted free from his cage. Um, there was a game in Midland, Texas in the 1970s that got delayed when there was some sort of chemical on the ground crew's grass procedure, and it brought out thousands of grasshoppers, and they are flying everywhere, and it looks misty because there's so many grasshoppers fluttering through the air. They had to actually shut down the game, and the city of Midland had to fumigate the next day to take care of these grasshoppers everywhere. So there's been a lot of wildlife delay. I, you know, but there's just so many uh, things. I, I got to think that there's even a whole a bunch of them that sort of... Um didn't even make the cut of this book. I mean, like just this, the fact that, you know, um, I mean, you go back like a 1902, the Texarkana casket makers, which by the way, as a, as a team name, right. Should be in some kind of hall of fame, but their ballpark straddled both Arkansas and Texas. So that like you mentioned that, you know, certain, some of the bases were in one state and some of the other parts of the, uh, of the field playing field were in another state. I mean, that's just a, a huge curiosity. And, and you, can you imagine, had something gone wrong and legally been challenged for whatever reasons, right? I mean, it, could have been, right. it could have been a real interstate legal tussle because of that. I mean, you know, it's just, that's endlessly fascinating. I could even see that being in a law school exam. Yeah, I never thought about that, the legal aspect of it. The publisher did some great cartoonish illustrations for a lot of these stories, and I love the one they did for that. It's a guy sliding, and right behind him is a Welcome to Texas sign right there on the field. Um. 
Yeah, I liked that one, the ballpark that was on state lines. There was also one on international lines in Agua Prieta, Mexico, where they used to have some winter ball games and some Mexican league games. And it was right on the edge of the Arizona border. And players actually hit home runs into the United States from Mexico. That's fascinating. I mean, and again, that too has some legal ramifications to it, especially if somebody's car on the other side got damaged. Exactly. Yeah. Where's the paperwork? Yeah, right. I mean, you know, these are these are not so necessarily theoretical sort of issues. So when you do this kind of research and stuff, and I ask this question to people who dig deep and go into archives and and all that kind of stuff, um, how do you prevent yourself from uh, getting stuck in the rabbit hole? Right. Um, This is certainly something in the realm of video with YouTube in particular. But but, you know, in the microfiche or you're going deep or. You know, do you find yourself going, shall we say, off task a lot? Because I, I certainly do, and maybe that's just because I'm can't pay attention. But it, to me, that the it's almost like a, a, you know, a ball of yarn when you're kind of keep pulling and pulling and pulling, mm-hmm. and just keeps going. Um, how do you prevent yourself or corral yourself from doing that, or is that part of the fun and the adventure, and it leads to more stuff that you find? I think it's the second part. I'm not sure I would want to stop the rabbit hole. What was great about this was that I didn't have a deadline. Like we talked about, I have a full-time job. So most writers, when they put together a book, they'll do the proposal first, then they get that book contract, and then they have a year or two to finish it. That wouldn't have worked for me. My wife and I have a young son. I have a job. I just couldn't have done this to the thoroughness that I wanted to on a deadline. So from 2012 through 2022, I was working on this without a publishing deal because I just had the confidence that someone would do what I wanted to do. Um, And that's what was great about that was it it would allow me to spend, you know, one different hour long session on the web on a Saturday, seeking more information on uh, a picture being traded for oysters. You can really narrow down, okay, why was this? Who was this guy? Oh, they called him Oyster Joe because he worked in an oyster fishery. Okay, now we're talking. And undoubtedly that happened. And it actually led to some journalistic challenges because they didn't have the internet in the 1940s to fact check things. So in early Baseball Digest magazine archives, for example, they would interview these players and the player would start telling these stories and say, oh, in 1938, I was in Albany and this crazy thing happened. But now we look him up on Baseball Reference and he actually was in Albany in 1937. Oh, and the game that he said was at home against Utica was actually in Utica. So then it leads to some challenges. The rabbit hole teaches me even more and more about this story. And maybe some of the details aren't right. So it led me to write around some things where I would just say in the late 1930s, instead of assigning a year. Um, that happened a couple of times too on some stories that seemed too hard to believe. You're in Pennsylvania, right? Did you say that? No, I'm in uh, northern Chicago suburbs. Okay. Sorry, Tim. Anyway. Um, hey, it's all right. I mean, I'm from New Jersey, so you can't insult me. <laughs> the per- the person who first told me about your, your podcast, John Fredland, he's from Pennsylvania. That's why I was thinking that. Anyway, um, there was this story in the Pennsylvania State League in the late 1890s where a player broke his bat and there are no bats left in the dugout. So he grabs an axe Of course, there's an axe in a minor league dugout for some reason. (laughs) And he reportedly takes that into the batter's box, takes a swing, and hits the ball 
and the ball splits in half. And the story says that half of the ball went over the fence and the umpire called it half of a run. And you're like me, you've seen a million games. This just isn't adding up. I mean, there, there's multiple aspects of this story that make you wonder. But it appears in multiple sources, and it's so funny, and the half of the run part is interesting. So I didn't know what to do. I spent so much time thinking about this. And finally, I decided I'm just going to write reportedly. And that way, you're telling the story of this was a report. This is what they were saying about it. I'm not saying I was there. I'm not saying this guy split a ball in half. There's only a couple of those in the book. I mean, most of the book is confirmed from multiple sources, but there are just a couple that are apocryphal, but they were so funny. And I just felt if I put reportedly, then the reader will know, I'm not saying this 100% happened the way it did. Now, it, it's and it, this is fascinating it, to me. I mean, you you open, look at this book, it's obviously laid out pretty, it, it, just as well as, as the, the previous one. But I mean, yeah. Uh, the Class D Corsicana Oil Cities, right, in 1902, right? A Texas League game, uh, there's a law that they can't play games on Sunday in Corsicana, so they move it to a, a temporary bar park in nearby Ennis, Texas. The right field fence is like only 210 feet from home plate. Corsicana wins <laughs> over Texarkana, 51 to 3. I mean, that that that's, to me, that's fascinating, you know, double asterisk type stuff that is just, to me, that's just part of the game and part of the lore, and and uh, I, I love that kind of stuff. Clearly, because of the the former team known as the Oil Cities, right? But um, just the fact that those kinds of things happened that you almost expect from, um, you know, from the early years of of any kind of pro sport, in particular baseball, which was you know the king of sports at that time. Yeah, no doubt. And to me, that's what is so fun about minor league history is there are so many games. I mean, in the late 1940s, there were 448 minor league teams in the United States, and all of them are playing just about every day throughout the summer. I mean, these days, AAA teams play 150 games a year. So if you think about it, if there's one type of sport in the United States that the wildest or at least most total wild things have happened, it's minor league baseball just because of the volume of games. So I think what you're saying is exactly right. I love that story about the 51 to three game. Uh, the batter, Justin Clark, hit eight home runs in that game. And he still gets his name in some press these days when the rare thing happens of a minor leaguer hitting four home runs in a game. They'll phrase it as it ties the modern era record. And the reason they have to say modern era is because of Clark, because obviously a player in 2023 is not going to hit eight home runs in a game. Even Shohei Otani doesn't get eight at-bats in a game. Um, so a lot of these crazy stories do still have a relevance today. Yeah, and that's what I love about sort of this little odd, peculiar genre that we've kind of focused on. Because it, it, it's, um, I don't want to say it's, well, in some respects, it's the gift, the gift that keeps on giving, but for two different reasons. One is exactly what you just said, in that the history books, statistics, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, it, it, it does harken back when records are close to being broken or actually done and and it becomes sort of a, a a hunt right to find out indeed if this was sort of a thing but it's also uh, and this is going to lead me to sort of my sort of last uh, uh, series of questions here is um you know we're now in a boom i guess of professional sports i think now that private equity in particular has discovered professional sports as the new asset class um, i'm not sure it's going to all end well but 
in we arguably are at the boom times, right? Because you've got, you know, lots of, um, you know, formerly known as secondary sports now getting three or four leagues. I mean, if you're into pickleball now is the salad days of that, right? Cause you've got four professional leagues now, um, et cetera. Not, not that these sports don't deserve some professional stuff, but, um, you know, in a world where major league soccer now is 30 teams and selling for half a half a billion dollar franchises. And, um, I don't know. It feels to me like we're, we're getting pretty bubbly in terms of how much is out there, but in many respects, I don't, I don't want to say we're rooting for this, but, not all of them are going to wind up succeeding in the long term, and uh, we'll be here, I guess, to <laughs> clean up the damage uh, and, and explore those stories as they uh, potentially go away. But the question I guess I really have for you, and I kind of signal it in the beginning, is well, what is your – having been in the in the minors now for uh, most of your career and, and, and with the uh, Chihuahuas for almost a decade now, um, you've kind of been in the previous realm of minor uh, – excuse me, minor league baseball's architecture and structure and now the i guess now newly crafted major league baseball oversight of such um do you notice any what differences do you notice and uh is it better or worse do you think um that the that major league baseball is um i don't know tightening the screws and harmonizing more than perhaps the more loosely affiliated kind of mindset that existed uh even just five years ago yeah, Major League Baseball took over its control of the minor leagues in 2021. As far as the business side, I really wouldn't know the exact ramifications of what that's been compared to what a minor league general manager would. At the time, what got a lot of attention was the number of affiliated teams going from 160 down to 120. And Idaho Falls was one of those, for example, a team that I used to work for, a city that I care about. So that was an emotional time to wonder about the future of these teams. The good news is Major League Baseball at the time said we are still committed to having professional baseball of some kind in all of these parks. And a couple of years later, that has happened. Idaho Falls still has the full ballpark on summer nights, and they're watching high-level baseball. Now, not every player on there is connected to a Major League organization currently. They're what they're calling an MLB Partner League, where some players are then uh, have their contracts sold to a major league organization. So there's no doubt it's been a difference, but I've been pleasantly surprised that in these cities, there is still an opportunity for people to go watch live games. And that's a big part of making baseball fans. Even before this transition happened, The Athletic had an article looking at a major league baseball study that MLB did with some of its marketing consultants and employees. And they found, basically they, they took people that were adults and said, what made you a baseball fan? What they found was that a huge percentage either got it from playing as a kid or attending a live game as a kid. And so to me, think about, I don't know, West Virginia. They had Bluefield and Princeton and Charleston. They had these three affiliated minor league professional teams. None of them have an affiliation anymore. And I thought, okay, what about a kid in West Virginia that was going to a game? Are they still going to be able to do that? And a few years later, luckily, the answer is yes. So uh, to me, that's been a pleasant surprise that even though it's a different form of baseball, these ballparks still have action in them. Yeah. And and independent leagues, uh, I guess, can fill in the gap and that kind of stuff. Um, I, I the, the What I fear, though, um, is 
the further corporatization of all of it, right? I mean, you know, again, I, I, I single out private equity in particular because the mindset of, uh, and private equity does what private equity does, right? It's not necessarily long-term. A lot of it is very short-termism and, and economics and reselling the assets and, and, and having the valuation grow to the point where it, it you know, can uh, pay for itself in a shorter period of time versus say other, other uh, investments. Right. And, and now we see like things like fractional ownerships and ownerships of, and I'm, this is not just baseball or minor leagues, but, but sports generally uh, multiple sports teams in various leagues and, or even in countries like say in soccer, um, where it's a, almost like a portfolio play of investment, which to me is a little bit, I mean, is intriguing and maybe inevitable, but it's also a little worrisome because you, you get out of or away from um, team ownership and, and, and maybe local uh, market understanding and, and the dynamics and stuff. And it becomes more things about like, things like real estate and merchandise and network effects, so to speak, with other teams and sharing resources and that kind of stuff. Again, from a business perspective, totally understandable, but I, I, I worry about sort of what the product looks like over time. Maybe it does get enhanced because of all of it, um, but I do worry that, shall we call them out-of-town owners or partial ownership or sort of more corporate expectations uh, could impede on what arguably is a beautiful game, right? And the minor league is should be probably a little bit different than the majors in that it is more accessible for more fan friendly, more local, local, um, more community oriented, that kind of stuff. I, that's just me maybe yelling at the clouds, but you know, you're in the booth. What do you sort of think or see? Well, your private equity mention reminded me of this great story. It doesn't totally answer your question, but um, I think you'll like it. Do you want me to go for it? Of course. So in um in the late 1970s, there was a double A team, the Pittsfield Astros in Western Massachusetts. And to show how much minor league baseball and its finances have changed, in the late 1970s, the owner has decided that they want to sell the team. And he's selling it for five thousand dollars for the whole franchise. And people within baseball are calling him and they're trying to negotiate and they're saying, I'll give you 3000 And they're saying things like, well, I know what your electric bills are, and I know you need new uniforms, so I'm not paying you $5,000. So in 1978, this owner in Pittsfield does something very unusual. He takes out an ad in the Wall Street Journal and says, do you want to own a double-A baseball team in beautiful Western Massachusetts? And he knew that these hedge fund types, that these stockbroker types would love that idea, that they would love to tell their buddies, I own the Astros double-A team. And he sold the team for $40,000, eight times what he was initially seeking. And I've heard that mentioned as a story that showed people how much value a minor league baseball team could have, and that there are business people from other cities that see value in it. Um. So the team I work for, the El Paso Chihuahuas, has great local ownership. All owners are so charitable, so known in the community. And I do think going to other ballparks and seeing teams that are owned from people elsewhere, that you do still have that local community because all of the employees still live there. The general manager is still speaking at the Rotary Clubs. The mascot is still going to the schools. So from my perspective, I think that 
minor league baseball has kept that community spirit. What do you think uh, happens with the relationship between the major league club and their minor league teams? Is it has it been strengthened? Do you think, or does it portend to be further strengthened uh, in this? You know, uh, more direct ownership by Major League Baseball. Have you noticed any changes, either good or bad, uh, since the announcement and the impl- uh, implementation of that? Is there tighter coordination? Do you do you find yourself being more harmonized with the organization, or has that really kind of not changed that much? I think Major League Baseball and its teams have been very pleased because there's now facility upgrade standards. Uh, this is something Major League Baseball has announced. It's been in a lot of media reports where they will give a ballpark X number of years to fix your lights or expand your clubhouse. And a lot of ballparks are doing this. So I think Major League teams are thrilled because that's their biggest concern is how are their players developing? You know, El Paso's ballpark is beautiful. The Padres see that. But the things they also see is that El Paso has big indoor batting cages and they have a weight training facility and they have a huge training room. Uh, All these things that day after day make the players a little bit better. And I think that a lot of facilities are getting that now. Those that maybe were a little bit behind are getting upgrades. There's a bunch of local news articles from various cities around the country of this team is putting in a million dollars to their park to do X, Y, and Z. So uh, minor league baseball ballparks already let's say five years ago, were much nicer than they were 30 years ago. But now they're getting even nicer. Yeah, and the expectations obviously will go up. Fan friendliness and, um, but you know, the the other side of that, right, is um, things like suites and, uh, you know, various uh, VIP sort of sections and benefits and bonuses and, you know, sort of the, yeah, the mimicking, if you will, of sort of like the first class versus regular Joe class kind of experiences and stuff. We see it go to any major league ballpark, right? I mean, if you're not sort of in a particular suite or whatever, right, you're sort of among the hoi polloi and, and those seats for the hoi polloi aren't necessarily as voluminous as the more attractively financially uh, better paying, you know, uh, situations and suites and all that kind of stuff. I, you know, again, I don't know. I, maybe, again, I'm just, you know, uh, uh, an old guy kind of just getting sort of, you know, uh, worrying about the sort of the changing of times, but um, you'd hate to see minor league baseball sort of uh, become too much of that sort of divergence of experiences, because I would argue that, that, you know, minor league baseball probably uniquely amongst professional sports has always been at least historically this environment of family friendliness, affordability, um, commonality with the players accessible, right? Where, you know, the, a lot of these pro teams, an average g- g- day at the ballpark is almost out of out of the reach of an increasing amount of people. I, I think that is still the case in minor league baseball. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I work for a team. This season, especially, it feels like we're farther and farther from the pandemic. And I'm seeing full ballparks. I'm seeing the access that you're describing. I think that's unchanged. I think Anyone who runs a team realizes the type of thing that you're saying is valuable to get people in the park, to get people following these teams. Um, You know, another good thing that MLB has done is digital and uh, broadcast wise, every game that used to be 
only on the web on MILB TV. You can now get on the MLB TV package. People watch El Paso Chihuahuas games on their TV all over the country every night. Um, there is it is easier to follow a AAA baseball game so many different ways than it was even five years ago. So to me, that's a plus. Oh, I, that's 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 tremendous to know. And obviously, in the, the revolution of streaming in particular. That's great because, you know, even for for broadcasters, right, that gives that's a, a an infinitely better way to get exposed, uh, get a few more looks from others, uh, another, you know, other jobs, other gigs and that kind of stuff. And just that kind of uh, national exposure. I mean, there's no. Um, yeah, it's just that's 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 probably one of the best sort of things to sort of come out of all this and and, and arguably there's some more stuff, too. I mean, I. You know, betting and stuff. I, I, you know, better or for worse, right? Maybe that generates more interest and all that stuff. So, I don't know. We'll see. I, I, I hope you're right. Um, that it does retain its uniqueness. I guess that's what I'm most concerned about. I'm not saying this shouldn't evolve. Look, with all due respect, I think a lot of the um, uh, the the rules changes that have come into Major League Baseball this year, right? They don't th- those don't occur without sort of coordinated use and and monitoring in the minors, right? And that's a good thing. I think it's actually been very, very helpful for Major League Baseball. Uh, having gone to a few games this year, um, I, I appreciated very much the fact that there's a pitch clock and and some of the other dynamics and stuff that make the game a little bit more, you know, modern day paced. I absolutely agree. If you asked me 10 years ago, do you need a pitch clock? I would have said no. But as the game evolved and there was more and more time in between balls and play, to me, the pace and the rhythm of the game has been normalized has been brought back. That's why I like words like restored. When people talk about the pitch clock changing the game, to me, and I've been watching as long as I can remember, to me, it's actually brought the game back to normal. It hasn't changed the game. The game already was changed with longer at-bats and more and more time between balls and play. So MLB did a good job with the rules experiments in the minor leagues. What they would do is isolate one rule in one league for a year or a half of a year. For example, at AAA, we saw the pitch timer but we never saw the shifts. They were looking at double-A leagues and studying the shifts because they recognized you can't project on a spreadsheet or in a boardroom what's going to happen with a rule change. You need high-level players to play this out over a season and see what kind of trends develop. Let me ask you that one last question, and then I'll let you... Uh, I got another question, and I'll let you promote. Um, how did you... What was your uh, experience with uh, with the pitch clock? How did you... Uh, approach it, uh, and how did you evolve with it? Because I got to think in the beginning, it had to completely upend your pacing and your storytelling and your notes taking. It was because of the year before, 2021. Um, El Paso, we're in a hitter's park to begin with, and we're going to these mountainous places like Albuquerque and Salt Lake, and the type of thing that Major League fans are used to with Coors Field, a lot of Pacific Coast League games are like that, long games. These fly balls are soaring out of the park. So in 2021... Before they enforced the pitch clock, El Paso had some long, slow-paced games. So I really was on story mode, and how do I make this inning interesting? So then the following year, 2022, when they enforced the pitch clock, it was noticeable. And within a couple of games, you get used to it. But you're making sure you're packing in your stories faster. But to me, it's a vast improvement. Um, You know, so many people will bring up the time of game. And yes, I love the fact that a family is now watching the ninth inning, whereas a couple of years ago, they probably had gone home by then. But to me, the biggest thing is the pace of play. 
not just time of game, but pace of play is the biggest benefit where when you turn on a random major league game now, it resembles the game I watched growing up in the 90s. There's a natural pace and rhythm to it. And by the way, I still see pitchers going to the rosin bag. I still see a batter stepping out and exhaling. It's not like the pitch clock is eight seconds. They have 15 and 20 seconds. Um, so I don't but, know but about you. You, you, but... didn't feel, you didn't feel compromised, though? I mean, it had to really set you off in terms of your historic approach to broadcasting a game. I mean, I, how long did it take you to kind of normalize that sort of reduced time? I think a couple of weeks worth of games. But then I thought back, my first season broadcasting professionally was 2004. And this is what the pace looked like back then. And we figured it out then. Um, I, I think there's still ways to mix in the stories. You're just pausing the story for a moment to say, um, you know, and then Tim Hamlin was also uh, an airline yeah, but, pilot after his career. And here's the 2-1. And then you, you pause gonna, and then you finish it. I thought you were going to say hit by a pitch. <laughs> right. All right. So what? Um, what other? So what other? Uh, what other things do you think you may have in you historically to pursue, along the lines of of these two books? Are there any other stories or um, thematic encyclopedic topics that uh, you think are worthy of pursuit, or that you're itching to do, or are you done in the book publishing field for some time? Right now, I'm just enjoying talking about this one, going on shows like yours. It's been really fun. I got to go on MLB Network, um, some other really exciting things of people that I follow or watch or listen to. So my first book came out in 2012. This one came out in 2023. Maybe in another 11 years, I'll have another one, but uh, no immediate plans or ideas at this point. All right. Time to promote. Name the books. How do we get it? And will you do signings? Have you been doing such in your travels as a broadcaster? Um. A few team stores, including the El Paso Chihuahuas team stores, have had me autograph some books, and they're selling them at ballparks, which is really exciting. As far as the title, the new book is Tales from the Dugout, 1001 Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Anecdotes from Minor League Baseball. It's available on Amazon. It's available in some bookstores in person. Not all. Amazon's the quickest way to get it. And as Tim Hamlet said, it is on his shelf a decade later. So there's an endorsement for my first book. It's... um. Root for the home team, minor league baseball's most off-the-wall team names and the stories behind them. And that's about the craziest team names in history. And yeah, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Both are really visual books, ones that you can pick up. And a cool thing that I'm hearing with my new one is the phrase, people of all ages. I'm hearing about people that are giving it to their kids and they like seeing the illustrations and the crazy baseball stories. So that's a nice compliment. Okay, our thanks to Tim. Uh, let's see, you can uh, follow uh, Tim, of course, uh, on the air as the voice of the El Paso Chihuahuas. They are the AAA affiliate of the San Diego Padres. Uh, he is the play-by-play voice. You can hear him uh, on the El Paso Chihuahuas radio network. Uh, you can also follow Tim uh, on Twitter at TD Haggerty. That's T as in Tom, D as in David Haggerty, H-A-G-E-R-T-Y. Uh, you can also follow him uh, on Twitter at Miners Team Names. Miners with an S, Team Names. Uh, and uh, all kinds of 
uh, information about the Chihuahuas can be found on their website, either at epchihuahuas.com or mlib.com slash L hyphen Paso. Either way, we'll get you to the Chihuahuas website to find out when they're playing, how to listen to Tim call the action, and uh, perhaps even get some garb or some gear uh, to show your support for the Chihuahuas in their efforts in the Pacific Coast League. While you're online, why don't you uh, go to our website at goodseedsstillavailable.com, search up this episode number 309 with Tim Haggerty, and you'll find convenient links to the two books. Uh, we'll take you right to uh, to Amazon, and we'll get a couple of shekels of affiliate love, and we appreciate that. And those two books are Root for the Home Team, Minor League Baseball's most off-the-wall team names and the stories behind them from 2012 in paperback from Cedar Mill Press and Tales from the Dugout, 1,001 humorous, inspirational, and wild anecdotes from Minor League Baseball, also in paperback and also by Cider Mill Press. Both of those books, wherever you can find good books or, again, through our website, goodseatsstillavailable.com, episode 309. Click the convenient link, why don't you, and buy them early and often. While you're also online, make sure that you uh, bookmark not only our website, but uh, follow us on the various socials. On Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, on Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. And on Facebook, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Please send us an email if you'd like. Hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. And of course, our thanks, as always, to the great Jerry Atlanta Braves Payne. Jerry Payne Audio Excellence, thank you kind sir. All right. Till then, till then, how about till next week? That's what I'm trying to say. Thanks for listening this week. Until next week, take care of yourselves and we'll see you.